This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. May I have your attention, please? It's a common phrase we hear over the PA, the public address system. A brief introduction to get us to listen to the ever so important information that is about to come. It's a polite request, may I, inviting us to turn our ear, and what follows next is something we probably need to be aware of. Sometimes there is a ding or a chime or a bell or other audible cue to alert us, and then the clear statement that we should pay attention to what is next. May I have your attention, please? There has been a gate change for flight number 316. May I have your attention, please? Will the owner of a white Toyota, license number JON316, please return to your vehicle? Your lights are on. May I have your attention, please? Will the parents of a missing child please come to the lost children booth? Your kid is driving us nuts. In Acts chapter 3, Jesus has gotten the attention of all those gathered at the temple that day. When Peter and John headed there at the hour of prayer, a lame man, unable to walk from birth, asking the disciples for alms and a handout. But silver and gold they did not have, but what they did have they offered to him. In the name of Jesus they commanded him, rise up and walk, they said. This intimate exchange between the three of them, though, it's about to get loud, really loud, as we see next that Peter took the layman by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, and he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. This whole turn of events cried out, May I have your attention, please, without uttering such verbal instructions, because everyone noticed and all eyes are on him, a clear departure departure from his normal position, sitting at the gate with no strength to walk. If you have ever had to sit for far too long in a meeting or a car ride, a class or seminar, or an airplane, you know how refreshing it is to get up and stretch your legs. You can just imagine how refreshing it is for this man to get up and get the cobwebs out. His response was one of being overjoyed, having never walked before now, walking and leaping and praising God. Jesus crying out through this miracle to all those there in the temple, may I have your attention, please. And by all means, he did have their attention. We continue this section in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 9. These two disciples of Jesus, Peter and John, they have the attention of the crowd. The crowd is all eyes and all ears. And they're looking at the layman, and they are looking at the disciples. Notice what we read in Acts 3, 9 through 12. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? First, they saw the man walking and praising God, a noteworthy sight for sure. Everyone is paying attention. Second, they figure out that Peter and John had something to do with it because this guy is hanging all over them. Let's take a look at each of these for a moment. The lame man. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Since the healing took place in verse 7, we see a repetition of walk and walking, a noteworthy accomplishment for someone who had never done this before, born lame. But it was not just the walking that caught their eye, it was the praising of God as well. This man was walking and praising at the same time. 
The Lord had done something very good for this man, and his heart was in such a place that he could acknowledge that it was the Lord. Interesting to think about. For years he had sat there and not been healed. These same men had passed by before. Even Jesus perhaps had passed by before. But all those years, all that suffering, all that going without, today it erupted in praise and it pointed for God's glory. Who knows sometimes why the things we're going through, why we're going through them at all, but maybe they're for God's glory. Some hearts, though, this man, he is praising God. Some hearts, though, for a variety of reasons, have grown bitter and hardened over time due to challenges or misfortune or circumstances that have been less than ideal. Years of asking the question, well, if God was so good, then why is my life like this? Or, well, God could do something at any time to help me out here, but he hasn't. And all the callousness grows over the days and the months and the weeks, even the years. A dangerous thing can happen. They can buy the lie that God is not good and that nothing good will ever happen to them. They've embraced the falsehood that they are victims and that the Lord is their adversary rather than their advocate. So if and when God does come through for them, some people miss it. They cannot praise God, give glory to God, praise God in it. They can write it off as a coincidence or even miss it altogether, discounting that God has moved in their favor, still cynical in all things related to God. But not this man. Even with all the years of begging by the temple, all the years of missing out on all the activity and fun of his childhood friends, all the years of not being able to work or excel in a trade, all the years of asking, why me, Lord? His heart was still able to praise the Lord when it did happen. He walked indeed that day when the Lord did the miracle, but he had the bonus of being able to worship God in that good thing that Jesus did a meaning and purpose behind it, a deeper blessing than just the physical benefit he left with that day. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus mentioned that our Heavenly Father is good and will bless our lives many times whether we acknowledge him or not. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We have all been there a time or two when we did something kind of good for another, a favor of some sort, a personal sacrifice, an effort for someone with no acknowledgement. It never sits right, does it? Jesus said our Heavenly Father gets that treatment every day, all the time even from you and I sometimes. He makes the sun rise on everyone, the evil and the good in this world. He sends rain to water the fields and the crops for everyone, just or unjust. His blessings will come, but how much fuller they are when we can worship the one who blessed us in that way, when we can turn and acknowledge him with praise and thanksgiving. We all experience good things in life, whether we are followers of Jesus or not, but to acknowledge and acknowledge the one who blessed us makes life all the richer. In Luke 17, the story is told of Jesus entering a certain village in the area of Samaria and Galilee. And ten lepers stood afar off, crying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus told them to go to the priests, and as they went, a miracle took place. They were cleansed from their leprosy, an incurable disease, but Jesus did it. And we read this in Luke. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were they not found any who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. 
your faith has made you well. All ten received the blessing that Jesus gave, but only one really experienced the full blessing as his acknowledgement and grateful heart brought him into a deeper fellowship with Jesus, who had given the blessing. Many in this world will take the blessings of God without acknowledging the one who blesses, but we can take the cue of the lame man, keeping our hearts right so when God does do something great in our favor, we cannot just walk, but we can also praise God too in the midst of what God has done. So the people see him walking and praising God. But second, they also figure out that Peter and John had something to do with it because this guy is hanging all over them, shifting the attention to them. It's like some football players pouncing on their teammate who has just made the game-winning touchdown. Read it again. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them and the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk? The man is holding on to them and the people look intently. They're staring. The word for holding there implies a death grip, not letting go. Because of the man hanging on to them, this crowd knows that Peter and John had everything to do with just what just happened. They don't seem to be calling attention to themselves or desiring to, but the crowd makes the connection because the layman is holding on to them. A lot of people love to draw attention to themselves. It's part of our sinful, fallen, prideful nature that we have within us. And I think that that increases ever more so with social media, where life can be posed and curated in order to get more attention on ourselves. More likes means more traffic, which means better algorithms, which can mean more of a following or more of an influence or even more money for some. But I love this, though, in Acts chapter 3. These disciples have been tasked with taking the gospel to the world, with spreading the word. If this were today, Peter and John might be tempted to go live at this point or get selfies of the occasion and try to go viral. But Peter and John will not go that route. They're not pressured to try and make a name for themselves. They just did what the Spirit wanted them to do in that moment and likely would have continued on up into the temple to pray at that hour as they were heading to do, intending to do that day. No crowd following, just moving on to talk to Jesus, perhaps, and give him thanksgiving for what he had just done through them and what they'd be able to witness and be a part of. They seemed content and confident that Jesus would take responsibility for spreading the word, and they would just take each opportunity as it came. It looks like Peter had no speech planned for when this happened. It says that when he saw it, when he saw all the people staring because this formerly lame man was hanging on to them, he was soberly aware and wanted them to be aware too that this was not of their doing, that they could take no credit. Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? It's not us, Peter says. It's not our power. It's not our godliness, Peter says. Jesus is responsible and we, well, we are just vessels. Peter himself would write years later in his first epistle, quoting from the Old Testament book of Proverbs, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How willing God is willing to use us if we are not going to rob him of the credit or try to manipulate things or our way to build our name or our kingdom or our ministry or our influence. For Peter and John, they had been broken of that notion before this. In their own journeys with Jesus, discovering that they did not have it in them. And for Peter, any remaining pride was stripped when he vowed that even if all the others betrayed Jesus, he would go with him to the end. But within a short period of time, Peter himself denied Jesus three times, putting his foot in his mouth. And even then, after the resurrection in John chapter 21, a night spent fishing, 
their old strong suit, but that night they caught nothing. How humbling to realize that even the small things that they could not do without him, seeing the full meaning of what Jesus said when he had told them that he was the vine and that they were the branches, and apart from him, they could do nothing. They had been taken through this school of humility, and this day their humility is put to the test and they pass the test. These men have true humble hearts, a sober understanding of who Jesus is and who they are, and not confusing the two. And because of that, Jesus used them this day. There are times when the Lord wants to invite us into greater things, to use our life in a greater capacity, and he draws us into seasons of humbling, to establish a true humility so that when he does use us in seasons to come, we are in the right place to point people back to him never robbing him of the glory that is indeed his. Well, while I am not sure that Peter and John meant to get a crowd going this day, they have the attention for sure. And so we read how Peter takes the opportunity and runs with it. We read verses 13 through 16. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter starts with the legacy, goes all the way back to their roots. The God we have served for generations, the God of Abraham, who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go in faith to a land that God would show him. And then the God of Isaac, Abraham's son of promise, the unexpected blessing, the child to an infertile couple serving the God of his father. And then the God of Jacob, one of Isaac's twin sons, the one that was chosen and given the blessing of the birthright, even though he was the younger one. And all the work that the Lord did in Jacob to give him a new name and a new identity, Israel. And then the God of our fathers, for generations of people who worshipped the one true God. Peter wants these Jewish listeners there at the temple that day to know that he is not going off script. This is not some new thing or some deviant spirituality or something even unexpected. Peter is about to tell them about the continued work of God. The God of the covenant they have all had all the way traced back to Abraham. And for generations, the God of their fathers. Imagine, all of this passed down one generation at a time. Each story, each promise, each covenant, each scripture. We played the birthday party game Hot Potato a time or two in our day, and as the music played, you passed the potato around the circle, holding it just long enough to pass it on. But the circuit had to keep going, one to the next and then to the next, and so it went from generation to generation. Faithfully knowing God and raising the next generation to serve him, it was Hot Potato, and Israel was far from successful, were they? How many times they dropped the ball, confusing the next generation by being disobedient themselves, by adopting idols or turning their backs on the one true God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. What a responsibility we have to point the next generation to Jesus. Deuteronomy 6-7, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, speaking of the scriptures. Psalm 145 verse 4 reads, One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. 
on to the New Testament, Paul telling Timothy in his final letter as he passes the baton, and the things that you have heard from me among, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Whether it be by example, or by word, or by instruction, we are to pass on the things of God, one generation at a time until the Lord returns. When I was a kid still living in San Diego, our family did not go to church. But when an elderly neighbor from the area came to the door one day, introducing herself and asking if my parents would be open to her picking us up in a school bus each Sunday morning and driving us to church, something in my parents said, sure. And so we did. For a season, Mrs. Crabtree and her school bus would drive around the neighborhoods in the area and pick up kids like my brother and myself, take us to church where we would then go to Sunday school. I was young at the time, probably four or five years old, but Mrs. Crabtree knew that our young hearts are malleable, and sowing seed into the next generation is always to be a priority. I don't remember much from the actual classes or the lessons, but I know that she and her church must have been praying for us and for all of the families that they picked up that on those Sunday mornings, because a few years and a move to Hawaii later, and we did end up in church, and we did come to know Jesus. God is a generational God passing from one generation to another, not in a tradition-driven way, but to be known personally, for each generation to experience him for themselves. Now, each generation does not need to reinvent God or the gospel, nor throw out all the old ways of worship, nor practicing faith. For as Hebrews 13.8 tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a scene in the 1980s movie, The Goonies about a bunch of kids and teens who get caught up in a treasure hunt following a map of a legendary pirate, One-Eyed Willie. But hot on their tail are a band of crooks, out to get the treasure first and silence the kids. And the kids find themselves underground in a series of passageways and caverns, all of them booby-trapped by One-Eyed Willie, years before to protect his treasure. At one point, they find themselves at the bottom of a wishing well, full of coins that people have tossed in for years from the well above. And an acquaintance of one of the girls just happens to be at the top of the well at the same moment. And they have their chance to escape the dangerous adventure that they're on and get away from the bad guys hot on their tail if they just ride up in Troy's bucket, up the wishing well. And while for a moment they think this may be their answer in their escape, one of the misfits, one of the goonies, speaks up and he says, Down here, it's our time. It's our time down here. That's all over the second we ride up Troy's bucket pretty cheesy line, but profound at the same time. And somehow I remember it about 40 years later. For the Goonies, this was their moment. This was their time. In that cave, in that adventure, it was their moment. This is what they had been waiting for, what they were made for. No one else had found One-Eyed Willie's map. It was their calling. And though hard and trying, this was it. Each generation has their time to walk with Jesus, to hear his voice, to fulfill his calling and raising up the next generation of leaders, of teachers, of pastors, of elders, of missionaries, of counselors, of deacons, of givers, and whatever else the church needs to serve Jesus fully on this earth, it's a priority that should never be on the back burner. And for that generation at the temple that day, it was their time. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their fathers, he sent his servant Jesus to their generation. As Peter mentions all these generations, the Lord had a plan from the beginning, as he had promised Abraham that God would bless him and that through him all the world would be blessed. It was the promise of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Savior, who would come through that line. Now all the focus in this scene is on the layman and on Peter and John. 
but Peter shifts the focus off of them and back onto the one that they should have been looking for, one that should always have been on their radar to seek. For generations promised a Messiah, and they should always have been looking for him, but they missed him, Peter says. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Peter points out their culpability. God glorified his servant Jesus, the one sent to do the dirty work of saving mankind. You delivered him up. You denied him. In fact, he almost got away. Pilate was prepared to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just. And a murderer got off scot-free, and the Prince of Life was killed. And those in the crowd had been a part of that. Peter calls Jesus a few things here, but one sticks out. He calls Jesus the Holy One. That is a name that throughout the Old Testament referred to God himself. Holy means set apart, like no other. And God himself was the Holy One. So throughout the Old Testament writings, he is called the Holy One. Here Peter refers to Jesus as the Holy One, because God himself, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Holy One himself came as a man, came in person, God in the flesh, to personally pay for our sins. The people in that crowd that day will remember that they consented and advocated to have Jesus sentenced to death just a short time before this. But it was much more than that. They, as representatives of sinful mankind, well, they put the Savior to death. Now, death could not hold him, as Peter points out. You killed the Prince of Life, he said, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. How intricate the plan of God, but how perfect. He could have saved himself from death, but he consented, knowing that though he knew no sin, he would pay for ours. And that though the enemy may have thought that there was victory in putting the Messiah to death, it played right into the plan all along. And the death fulfilled the need of a substitutionary sacrifice. And the resurrection showed that it was paid in full. I wonder if those in the crowd that day sunk their heads with the realization of what they had done. But Peter is making a case, and now he has their ears and their broken hearts, he has their attention, and he can deliver the good news. It's a key step in delivering the gospel. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It takes being broken over sin to receive God's solution for sin. It takes feeling the weight of our need before accepting the provision for our need. Unfortunately, many people feel broken over getting caught in their sin and not really broken over their sin. But Jesus brings forgiveness and healing when brokenness truly occurs. And Peter wants to draw their attention to the fact that Jesus is alive and well, and all they see before them in this lame man healed, it is the work of the resurrected Jesus. Verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Jesus has done this, Peter says. His name, through faith in his name. A name in that time was more than just a personal identifier. Names today are more about how they sound or, or if they're on trend or not. When I grew up, names like Jessica and Michelle and Jennifer were big, or Jacob or Justin or Andrew. Now it's names like Liam and Noah and Isabella and Michaela, Amara. I work with middle schoolers often, and it's amazing how many variations in spelling there are for the name Paisley. But time changes which names are popular. They have a sound and a style to them. But biblically, names refer to the person's character 
or their nature. They were more about who you were or what you were. And Jesus, as popular a name as it was in those days, it was a common name, actually. It meant the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. And that is exactly what Jesus did. And on that day at that temple, too, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was made strong. The man had perfect soundness because he believed Peter and John when they said that Jesus could do it. Using the name of Jesus, it was not some magic word, an abracadabra key phrase. It was introducing this lame man to Jesus and all that he is. And the lame man believed it and received what Jesus could deliver. That is one reason Peter had quoted on the day of Pentecost from the Old Testament prophet of Joel when he said, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because the name of the Lord is Jesus. God is salvation. And calling upon the name of Jesus is the only way of salvation. As Peter will tell them in the next chapter of the book of Acts, when they're called to answer for the events of this day, Jesus, uh, Peter will say, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. People can decry that Christians are narrow-minded to declare exclusivity, that only Jesus saves, but his name points to the undeniable truth, that man cannot save himself, that God is salvation. So he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be declared righteous. God is who he is. God does what he does. God is able because he is able, but our faith is part of the equation. Here's what Peter had just said in verse 16, and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. The writer of Hebrews wrote, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Our faith activates the work of God in our lives. And while all the resources and power and work of God are available to us, without faith of us believing and trusting and acting on that, with stepping out in believing that God's going to come through, we don't always experience the things of God. This man believed. He trusted fully in Jesus' ability to save. And he now experienced perfect soundness, so powerful, perfectly sound, meaning nothing missing, nothing lacking. Send in the medical team, check the x-rays. It is all gone. The cancer cells, the diagnosis, the prognosis, perfectly sound. Jesus still does that even today. So now what? Peter does not leave them hanging, but draws their attention to their next steps. What are their action steps in light of what they had heard? For God's word always needs to be met with application. Hearing and understanding are one thing, but application is the end goal. It's always important to follow through and apply the things that we have heard. Unfortunately, when it comes to God's word, at times it can be like a story posted on social media. Stories post for just a short time, and you have a small window to see them, just 24 hours, and then they're gone. You can't go back and see them again. Only the one who posted them can dig them up from their own archives. God's word is not meant to be a brief story to muse over. It's not something to speak of in the moment, but with no lasting presence lest it go in one ear and out the other, or just become fodder for spiritual discourse. But God's word should never return void, but should incite a response. It's great to dig in the word, to dig into theology, to dig deep and try and understand the deep things of God. But at the end of that, there should always be a time to sit and say, so God, what do you want me to do with this?
How do you want me to respond right now? How is this speaking into my life, into my circumstances, into the very things that I'm going through and the things that I have been praying for? How is this potentially an answer? And then to let the Holy Spirit show us, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to walk out this truth. This is how I want you to apply what you have learned. Application is probably the most important part of Bible study. Peter gives that response to the crowd in Acts 3, verses 17 through 21. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. I hope that they were taking notes because there is a lot packed in that bit of Peter's speech. First, he says, they were ignorant. They did not fully understand what they did at the time. And God is going to be merciful in that. What a relief to hear. They cannot go back and change what they did, but God is going to use it for his purposes and for their redemption. How good to know that God can even use the foolish things that we have done, even in ignorance, when we truly come to him and surrender. The promise in Romans 8.28 is more than just a cliche. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, and to those who are called according to his purposes. God can and does use the ignorant things for his purposes ultimately if we'll turn everything over to him. Another thing that Peter points out, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Their ignorance and their actions could not circumvent God's plan in the end. God is sovereign, and he will have the final say. He will fulfill the purposes that he has. It was his plan to send a savior, foretold through the mouth of the prophets. How good to know that God sees what is to come. We can rest in his wisdom and knowledge and foresight and understanding. And while at times we may wish that we too could see ahead, I'm not sure that we could handle it all, but God can and God does. The third thing that Peter says, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Though they had messed up, repentance was available. A chance to recognize that they were wrong, to reconsider, and to turn and to do what is right. What good news, too, that if they do repent and convert to Jesus, their sins, though they may be a scarlet, they might be blotted out, erased, no record against them. I got a speeding ticket a few years back. It was early in the day on New Year's Eve, and we had gone to a matinee of a movie. Driving home, we were talking about the movie and planning what we might do for a quiet New Year's Eve at home that night, and we passed through an area that is notorious for speed traps. While most back roads in our area have a 45-mile-per-hour speed limit, this area is 35, and in some places 25. And I totally missed it as we were caught up in our conversation. I saw the cop. My heart dropped. My speed did too, but it was too late. He got me. I was going about eight miles over the limit, and my fine, it was $250. What a way to celebrate the end of the year. Well, I was guilty, no talking my way out of it, but what I did not want was for it to go in my record. I didn't want the insurance issues and all that. Well, we had prepaid legal through work at the time, and with a few phone calls, I was able to go to court with a legal representative, not to try to get out of paying, but to ask that if not go that it not go on my clean driving record. 
At the small town courthouse that night, lots of people there for various reasons. I saw an interesting cross-section of society that evening, but I did not even need to wait for the judge to take the bench. My attorney from the legal representation went to the judge's chambers and within a few minutes came out to get my payment for the ticket, with the agreement that it would not go on my record. The fine was paid, the debt was satisfied, and moving forward, it was as if it never happened, not to be held against me. I was $250 poor, but grateful at the same time. Good news for those at the temple that day. The debt had been paid, but their sins would be blotted out when they repented. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it does get those stains out like no detergent on earth can. Peter urges them to take Jesus up on the offer, as he says, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Like kryptonite to Superman, nothing saps our strength and well-being more than sin. Sin in our life drains us, exhausts us, tears us up. We become prisoners to it, just like the proverbial, the, the animal going around on the wheel over and over, running on that wheel and just getting tired, never able to stop. It may feel great for the moment, but it is actually depleting us, draining us. The psalmist David knew this firsthand as he wrote in Psalm 32. Notice the contrast of the before and the after. We read, When I kept silent about his sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He was suffering, lifeless, and weak in sin. And then the contrast, though, came when he acknowledged it. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How refreshed he was once he was forgiven. Life returned like water to a weary soul. We took the travel trailer out for two nights. Nothing big, just a fun camping spot near our home. And of course, the cats came along. They love hanging out in the camper, by the way. But the final morning as we started packing up, I noticed that their water bowl was empty. It was kind of tucked away and out of view, so at some point they had been without water. So we filled it back up. And it must have been a while, we realized at that point, because they went to town on that bowl full of water. I know they are cats and not dogs, but you would have thought they were dogs the way they were lapping up that water. Clearly thirsty and clearly parched, their little tongues darting in and out of the water bowl, and they could not get enough of that stuff. I could just imagine the water filling their bellies and then their bodies, replenishing all that was gone because clearly they had gone too long without water. Those are the times of refreshment that Peter tells them about. If they would just repent of their sin, the Lord would forgive their iniquity. How exhausted we can be in our sin. How tired we can grow in our sin. See someone who's living in a lifestyle of sin and you just see the life has been sapped out of them, especially their spiritual life. But when they repent, God forgives, and then times of refreshment will come. How miserable we are when we live in sin, how it saps us and drains us and weakens us and torments us, but the refreshment that comes when we return to Jesus. And finally, Peter tells them to accept Jesus' offer for this reason, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This is a limited time offer, Peter says. Like when you watch on TV or hear on the radio, a good offer may not last forever. So don't wait too long in trying to decide or the deal may be gone. Fortunately, with Jesus, it is not an issue of while supplies last. 
His blood is more than able to cleanse us for any who seek it. But Peter notes a timeline that Jesus will be back. Heaven has received him until the times of restoration of all things, and God has spoken about it by the mouths of the prophets since time began. So the time to respond was now, he said to them, don't delay. The Holy Spirit is working consistently and constantly to draw us to Jesus, to bring us to repent and to be saved. And there are eternal implications for the decision that we make about Jesus. Heaven has received Jesus until the times of restoration of all things. For those who repent and are saved, a future with Jesus awaits, but rejecting his offer or waiting too long, it means missing out on that secure future. Peter and the disciples did not know how long. When they watched Jesus ascend to the Father just a short time before, they were told to just keep pressing on. But they lived with an expectation of the imminent return of Jesus. And, and Peter conveys that here too. Do it now, he says. Get right with God now, he says, because we do not know when Jesus will come back. And if you wait until then, it will be too late. We are wise to live in consistent urgency of the things of God. Since God is eternal and life is long, we can slip into a I'll get to it later thinking, Lord, I will deal with the issue in my heart later. Life is too busy. Lord, I will reach out to that person later. There will be other opportunities, right? Lord, I will repent of this sin later. I'm enjoying it too much right now. Lord, I will draw closer to you later. There will be time for that, right? It's probably time to wake up and get moving. As Paul said in Romans, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So Lord, we ask that you would get our attention and awaken us to the things that are most important right now. Lord, may we give you our attention above all other things, all the distractions and the things that this life throws at us or draws us away to. And Lord, use us. May we not take the attention, but point it to you, knowing that you are the one who works in us and through us. As we turn to you, Lord, may we find our lives and our hearts refreshed and restored. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. And may we proclaim it and share it faithfully until you return. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.